0: Welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm your host, Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, and today I'm here with Mary Alice, our manager and editor here at Baby Chick, as well as a student midwife and a doula. We're here doling out no-nonsense pregnancy and parenting advice. We've worked with hundreds of families and have condensed all that we've learned to bring you simple, practical, and immediate advice for preventing parenting conundrums. Today, we're discussing birth plans. What is a birth plan, and how do you go about writing one? What do you even put on a birth plan? Do you need a birth plan even if you're having a scheduled induction or a cesarean section? Are birth plans just for hippie natural births? We're answering all of these questions and more. Hey, guys. Hello. Mary Alice and I are back, and we are chatting about all things birth plans. And as you know, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that Mary Alice and I have been to a lot of births. Many, many. Many, many. And one of the things that birth doulas do when helping our clients prepare for their birth is helping them create a birth plan. So
1: Nina, if I write a birth plan and I write down 20 things that I want, does that mean all those things happen?
0: I wish and I hope. But the thing is, I think, Mary Alice, the whole purpose of creating a birth plan is just understanding what options are available to you and really understanding what it is that you want. It doesn't mean, I mean, I wish. I wish it was a contract that you're signing and saying, yes, this is everything that's going to happen at my birth. But unfortunately, maybe baby has a different plan, or maybe your doctor has a different plan. But Understanding what those options are ahead of time really can help you achieve those goals in the long run.
1: Right. So a birth plan is a way to research options that you have available to you and write them down so that you can communicate what it is that you're wanting and the choices that you would make given different options and scenarios with your healthcare provider. So you can write your birth plan, do your research, find a way to communicate what it is that's important to you. That opens up a conversation with your doctor and you bring it with you in labor so so that that communicates things to your nurse while you're busy being in labor.
0: Absolutely, and something that I think people need to understand is that when you are creating a birth plan, it doesn't mean you're writing a novel. It means that you're writing a document that should hopefully be just one page, at the most, front and back. It doesn't need to be pages long, because your doctor, when you come to your prenatal visit with your birth plan in hand, will, one, roll their eyes, <laughs> and two, be like, you don't really expect all of this and happening. And be like, oh, I'm going to put this in the shredder. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This lady's
1: crazy. <laughs> and
0: the nurse will do the exact same thing if you think you're going to bring that in. So really keeping it to the most important things that you would like ideally to happen at your birth. And it starts off basic. So Mary Alice, when you start a birth plan, let's list off the first things that people should be putting at the top of their birth plan. Okay, so
1: you're definitely going to want to communicate the facts. So what is your name? Putting your whole name at the top, including your main name, your partner's name, if your baby has a name, your baby's name, the name of your doctor or your midwife, your due date I like to tell people to put the name of the people that will be in the room with them. So if you have your mom in the room or a doula or a sister or a friend having that person's name, especially if y'all don't all show up at the same time, it can be really useful if the friend desk calls and is like, oh, so-and-so's here and that's a familiar name. Like, yeah, she's allowed to be here, we're excited. Your pediatrician, where you're planning to deliver. And the thing that I like to add to the top of your birth plan is the date that you received your TDAP booster. Because I have found that so many people show up in labor And one of the first questions that the nurse asks is, what date did you receive your Tdap booster? And
0: everyone's like, I have no idea. Uh, I
1: don't know. (laughs) So if that's written there, then you don't have to like dig through your calendar and try and figure out when that was.
0: And so having those facts, like Mary Alice said, is super helpful for them to be able to glance and know like, oh, okay. Because one question that they do often ask is who is your pediatrician? Which if you didn't know, I've had some clients be like, oh, wait, I have to find my pediatrician before I have a baby. And I go, yeah, you may want to even interview some people, which we just did a podcast about that.
1: We have a solution to that problem.
0: (laughs) So you can have the 22 questions that you need to be asking your pediatrician during an interview. But yes, you need to be aware of who your pediatrician is Whenever your baby's born, because you need to know if your pediatrician has privileges at that hospital. So then they can maybe assess baby after baby is born, or if they're gonna need another pediatrician at the Whoever's hospital. Whoever's on call can always see your baby. Someone will see your baby. Yeah. <laughs> you won't be left alone. Dry. So another thing right after those stats is really just introducing yourself. So maybe, especially for people who have had a struggle with their pregnancies or trauma. Birth trauma or any trauma in their life, explaining a little bit about your story. And it just gives them a good opportunity to really understand who you are and your appreciation for everything that they're doing for you, but also get a look as to who you really are. And for most people,
1: this can be like one sentence. Yes. (laughs) Like, my name is Nina, and I'm so excited to meet you and
0: thankful that you're here to help us. This is my first baby. This is my first First baby. Yeah. And everything's been healthy. Yay. Amen. (laughs) But if you're someone who's like, hey, this is my second pregnancy. I'm really hoping for a back because I had a cesarean the first time my baby was breached or whatever it is, giving them a little behind the scenes story of what's going on and what you really want. Sometimes that section can also be really useful to communicate very important
1: concerns or needs while you're in the hospital, um, especially there are families who feel very strongly about not having any men in the room while mom is in labor or during delivery, not having students again, have some kind of cultural or emotional need to communicate up at the top is a good place to do that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to be able to share with you guys our birth plan template. So we're kind of going through that as we look at it right now. But if you're never going to remember everything that Nina and Mary Alice just said, don't worry, we've got you. We're going to include a link in the description where you can find the template so you can easily follow all of this information later.
1: And again, when you see this template, it
0: is long. <laughs>
1: and so just know that this template is not your birth plan. This is a template that is a tool that you can use to write a birth plan. So you can go through it, talk about it with your support people, your partner, your doctor, your doula, whoever. And then from there, write up a nice little
0: one-page summary. Exactly. It just gives you all the information that you need to know, but really you need to be cutting a good majority out that is not important to you or does not even apply to you in your pregnancies or your hospital if it's not available at your hospital. So yeah, really pegging down what's important to you, what you want, et cetera. Oh, the birth environment. <laughs> <laughs> so cozy. So I think the first thing is let's start off easy. What do you want your birth environment to be like? Some people want it to be like a spa-like environment. So they want the dim lights and music playing and aromatherapy and they don't want any visitors, no extra noise. They want to be able to wear their own birth gown rather than the hospital gown, or they don't want any extra students. I mean, this is where you get to kind of set the tone of what you want your birth environment to be like.
1: Some people want to make sure that they can have all of their sisters in the room and all of their friends and family and kind of a, it was like a party community vibe. They just want all of their people there. They are fine with people talking. They just want it to be like a good, uplifting and positive environment.
0: And that's just something that's different, but is also a preference something that you need to list out. Because again, if you're okay with the lights being on and because you know, like, hey, I know I really want an epidural and I want to just be able to chat with my friends. I'm okay with the lights being on and watching TV, listening to music or whatever. But some people who are wanting, let's say an unmedicated birth, they know that they can't have too many distractions and they really need to focus on each contraction getting through it. So really minimizing all the extra yeah. distraction. Yeah. I would say in the birth environment
1: section of your birth plan,
0: you really Want to think about what it is about
1: your birth environment that needs to be communicated to the hospital? Because there are some things your husband can take care of, or your support people like lighting your candles or putting on your essential oils or whatever. But as far as the hospital goes, they really do need to know if you don't want students, you want to try and keep the door closed and voices really quiet. They need to know if you want to wear your own clothes, especially because you are a hundred percent allowed to wear your own clothes. That is something that you are allowed to do, and no matter how many times they tell you. Unless you have a planned C-section, you can wear whatever you want. So just know that you can say, no, you know what? I have this dress I'm going to wear or my T-shirt or whatever it is. As long as they have access to what they need access to, then that should be fine. They also need to know, depending on where you're planning to have your baby, if you want to take pictures or video, sometimes you're not allowed to take any videos of the doctor doing their job or delivering your baby or any medical procedures. But you can take video, of course, like first moments with your little one.
0: Yeah, but some doctors do allow it. So, again, listing that if that is something that you prefer, talking about that with your doctor ahead of time and having that on your birth plan is important. What about pain, Nina? Oh, man. What are we going to do about that? <laughs> so, I think you guys may have heard that birth doesn't tickle. It definitely <laughs> is a little uncomfortable. And the biggest thing I think that people are the most fearful of is the pain. How are they going to get through the pain? So, on a birth plan, you need to talk about. What is it that you want to use to be able to get through that pain? What is your pain management preferences? Do those preferences change throughout your birth? So are you wanting to get through,
1: you know, I really want to use relaxation and aromatherapy and massage and counterpressure and position changes until I feel like that's no longer working for me or until I feel like I'm five or six centimeters and I'm ready to get an epidural or until I'm pushing and I want something else or I want a narcotic or I want this, that, or the other. And so really laying out how you would like to communicate your preferences to the hospital in terms of your pain management. Or to the birth center, because there are some pain management options available with midwives at birth centers and sometimes at home births as far as you know nitrous oxide or being able to have a narcotic early in labor.
0: And that's something that a lot of people don't know. And I think most women just think, oh, there's only an epidural, but actually there's way more options. And that's what a birth plan is good for is for You to really sit down and look at okay, what are the pain management options that are available to me? So yes, there's an epidural or a spinal, or you can use an analgesic, uh, which is Demerol or Nubane Nubane or Stadol or or those kind of things. So talking about those, one are they available at your hospital? Two, does your doctor really use any of that? Because doctors do have different preferences. We know this one midwife
1: and she uses morphine during labor and birth, and I've seen that a handful of times, and that's her preferred way to help people manage pain in early labor. And she has her pros and cons for that. And doctors have that with lots of different drugs. And so you want to make sure that what you've done your research on and what you've decided is your preference also aligns with your doctor's policies. Yeah.
0: And the good thing is whenever you're doing a birth plan, I mean, it could be anything from I don't want anything. Do not let me have anything, even if I'm begging for it. To the polar opposite. As soon as I roll up, you have my epidural ready and waiting in in my room. So it can be anything in between. So, really listing out, hey, these are the things that I want to take advantage of. Maybe your hospital has a tub or a shower and you want to be able to use that. So, then understanding, okay, I need to have external monitoring, hopefully intermittent monitoring. Is that something that I really want? And then also, I need to have a HEP lock instead of an IV. So, doing your Research on what is a HEP lock and do I want that over an IV and intermittent monitoring? Is that something my doctor will allow? Do they have waterproof monitors? I mean, some of the hospitals here have them, uh, but not every hospital does. So, talking about that with your care provider is important.
1: And a lot of those choices that Nina just laid out really affect how much you can move during labor. And so, if you're not planning to get an epidural or if you want to labor as long as possible without an epidural or you know you want to do a part of your labor while still feeling everything 100%. Movement is key to being able to cope for most women. Being able to sway and change positions and walk and get in the bathtub and get in the shower and sit on the toilet and lift your leg up and lunge and do all of the things. Sit on a birth ball and Lots of different choices affect how much you can move. Definitely don't think that because you're connected to an IV, it doesn't mean you won't be able to have an unmedicated birth because that's definitely not true. But you want to be able to be creative and communicate that even if I do need constant monitoring where I'm connected with a wire and I have an IV, I want the hospital and my nurse and my doctor to know I would like to be able to move as much as I can.
0: And I totally agree with Mary Alice because I've heard so many women say, I had to move. It just was essential. And being in the bed was awful. I just felt everything and I needed to be able to get up and move my body with each contraction. I couldn't just lay there because it just made it that much worse. And when I was going through it myself, I completely agree. Granted, I was also in transition when I had to lay in the bed and was getting ready to push, but it was god awful being in that bed. All I wanted to do was get back in that tub or even just laying on the ball or just being in a different position to work with my body. Movement is absolutely key. As she said, So understanding what those options are, like the electronic fetal monitoring, are you going to have that continuous or intermittent, wireless, waterproof, I mean, consistent. Some doctors make you do it the whole way through. They want a consistent reading of every little thing that baby's doing.
1: And I think, too, that so many nurses, they just tell you to get in bed. They're like, okay, great. So just get in bed. And that's just what you're told to do. And that's just kind of the conveyor belt that you get on where, oh, you get in bed. And then I hear so many people say, well, I thought I had to stay in bed. I didn't even have an epidural yet. And I thought that I had to stay in bed. People don't realize that you can stand next to the bed. You can sit on the ball next to the bed. You can be right there connected to everything and still move a little bit.
0: You can even roll everything to the bathroom. I mean, mama's got to pee. I mean, you're pregnant, remember? Like you have to pee every five seconds. So movement, yeah, you can do all of those things. And there's a reason why there are tubs and showers in labor and delivery rooms. I mean, it's not there for you to just look at. They're there for you to take advantage of. So if that is something that you want to use as a pain management preference, then go for it. But yeah, really understanding what it is that you ultimately want if you want an unmedicated birth or if you do want medication, what medication do you prefer to take, Understanding the benefits and risks to all of that, listening to your gut, and then also realizing, okay, do those medications give me the type of labor experience that I want? Am I able to move? Am I able not to move? Because yeah, when you have an epidural, some women don't realize you are in bed the whole time. You have a catheter in, so you are not getting up and peeing. The catheter is doing it for you. You have your blood pressure cuff on you. You have everything to make sure that this epidural is still allowing your body Body to function the way that it should. So you're pretty much stuck in bed and you have to go from left to right to sitting up. I usually tell women, try to do that every 30 minutes. The longest position you should be in is in an hour, but nothing more than an hour. You need to keep moving because even with an epidural, movement is still key. You've got to be able to move. And your nurse will definitely help you with those position changes. But sometimes they have more than one room to take care of. So you may want to say like, hey, I think it's been a little long for me in this position. Can you help me move in the next one?
1: I think that's something that we hear a lot about fears in relationship to labor are fears about having a labor induction and then kind of that cascade of interventions. So when to suggest, what are they going to say I need? What will I really need? What happens if things don't go perfectly according to plan where I'm just contracting wonderfully the whole time and making perfect progress and my baby just comes out? I'm dilating
0: every (laughs) centimeter, every hour. I'm
1: like, oh, right. So if you don't dilate one centimeter every hour, then you may want to have a plan and have done some research and have a way to communicate your preferences in terms of induction and augmentation of your labor to the hospital staff. So things to think about are what are things that you can do yourself without any medical intervention to kind of get things going. Your position changes, nipple stimulation, acupressure, acupuncture, aromatherapy, bowel stimulation. You can use castor oil. You can have an enema, walking relaxation some people use herbs if they have someone trusted who has lots of knowledge about that herbs are like medicine so you definitely need to have someone who knows what they're doing with that but there are lots of different things that you can do to start try and start labor on
0: your own or to pick things up if there's a lull And I think that that's what most people don't know about because when you're in a hospital and things are, like you just said, in a lull, the hospital will immediately offer an intervention like Pitocin or breaking your water or sweeping your membranes or anything else. So knowing that there are actually things that you can do yourself is really helpful. And just saying, hey... Can I have one more hour, two more hours, please? I'll be doing some lunges, walking down the halls. Using a breast pump. Yeah, I'm going to do all the things that I can to really get these contractions going and to help with dilation. So again, this birth plan lets you know those things and lets them know that you'd prefer to take these steps first before you go straight to Pitocin. Also being
1: able to communicate that I really would prefer to have Pitocin before you break my water, or I would prefer you to try breaking my water before you give me pitocin. Or once my water is broken, please don't check me too many times. The more times someone checks you and exposes outside bacteria into your uterus once your water is broken, the higher the chance you have of developing an infection, which obviously no one wants. And so really asking that they limit vaginal exams as much as possible once your water has broken.
0: What people need to know when it comes to inductions, what are the different induction methods at the hospital?
1: Yeah. So if you are 41 weeks and there's just nothing, nothing happening and on. you're having all the sex and you know, <laughs> doing it's all the walks, not all the spicy food
0: and nada. <laughs> it means that you're going to be scheduled to go in. Some doctors, they may a couple days before start stripping those membranes to try and get something going. If that is not working, you come into the hospital. Some like to have you come in the night before and then they place a cervical ripening agent. Usually it's Cervidil, but ask them. They may give you a tablet like Cytotec or they may use a balloon dilator to help things get going. And then usually the next day in the morning, which I'm like, great, she's had no sleep. Perfect. Let's really get things going.
1: You can ask for an Ambien that night, and I always told people to ask, and they'll give you one usually. Uh, the ask for a sleeping pill, and so because you're excited, you're like in the hospital. Maybe you're like contracting a little bit, or you're kind of crampy from whatever they have done to you so far, and you can ask for something to help you sleep. Then do Benadryl. that.
0: Absolutely recommend that because you really need to get that rest because you have all of labor to go through, and then you also have to push. But then the next day, they typically start with some Pitocin, and they should. Start start at the lowest dose. Usually they say the lowest dose is what 2 million units.
1: 2 million units. Like like, mm-hmm,
0: um, so it starts off at 2 million units and then depending on your doctor it could be every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes usually around every 30 minutes to an hour they will bump it up another 2 million and so they keep bumping it up until you've established a contraction
1: pattern that is what they deem to be something that resembles active labor so usually that's when you're contracting between 2 and 3 minutes every 2 and 3 minutes and your contractions are lasting between 45 minutes oh, whoa, whoa not no. 45 minutes <laughs> 45 <laughs> seconds to 1 minute and so you kind of think oh wow well, they're 5 minutes apart they should probably stop now but don't worry Worry. they do keep bumping it up until they're about two to three
0: minutes apart right absolutely and then the last thing is then breaking your water and just from my own personal experience, guys, you can stop Pitocin. You can take out a balloon dilator. You can stop rubbing your nipples. Like there are things that you can stop doing, but once your water is broken, there's no coming back from that. You cannot put that back together. And a lot of doctors, once your water is broken, it means that you have to have your baby within 24 hours. And gosh, I really hope that you do in general have your baby within 24 hours, because that's a long time. But at the end of the day, you wanna give yourself every opportunity to have the birth that you want and if you are held to this timestamp stamp for some reason in women's minds i feel like they then are looking at the clock and it just makes their body not want to do it yeah it
1: kind of tenses you up yeah
0: exactly but at the same time, there are women, they got it at the right time. They got it at like six, seven, eight centimeters. They broke their water and that helped them like finish the way through, but not at two or three centimeters. Yeah. Unless your baby does it, unless your baby kicks really hard and breaks your water. I mean, that's the way it needs to happen. But having someone do it for you tends to come with other things that you may want to be avoiding. Yeah. And just like with pain preferences,
1: and your doctor has certain pain management techniques and certain medications that they're comfortable using, it's going to be the same way for a labor induction. So I would do my research. I would go in knowing what my preferences are to a doctor's appointment and talk with your doctor. When are you going to induce me? How long past my due date will you let me go? Um, Do you use a cervical ripening agent first? Will you let me use a cervical ripening agent and a balloon dilator and then start Pitocin in the morning? What are their policies? And that way you can tell, you know, is my doctor on the same philosophical page that I am? And adjust your expectations to what is is reasonable for the practice.
0: Yes. I was going to say, because your doctor may not be on call really asking like, hey, do your other doctors on this team practice the same way and feel the same way when it comes to inductions? That's definitely a good question to ask when you bring in your birth plan. Okay. So the next part we have is pushing and delivery. So, you may not know that you can actually push in more than one position than with your legs in the air and on your back. You can do it in any position. (laughs) You can push on your side. You can push in a squat. You can push standing up. hands and knees. Kneeling. There's so many different ways and can I tell you, I did them all. Nina
1: did do them all. (laughs)
0: Because I pushed for three (laughs) hours and it was really helpful to be able to get in different positions because I feel like it helped me move him a little bit lower and get just an extra burst of energy to figure out another way to try and get him out. Because whenever you're pushing in the exact same position over and over and over and you feel like you're not making any progress, it's nice to be able to change things up.
1: And some positions
0: are better for different
1: babies or for different pelvises. And the way that the baby's moving down into the mom's pelvis, maybe the baby's like a tiny little bit asynclitic, its head is a little bit cocked, and really you just kind of need your mom's tailbone to swing open a little bit more and turning on your side will do that trick rather than being flat up against the bed.
0: And obviously with pushing, something that a lot of people are nervous about is tearing. And that's something that I was particularly nervous about is like, okay, I really want to limit my chances of tearing. So in your birth plan, if that is something that you're concerned about and wanting to limit your chances of tearing, talking about that with your doctor and saying like, yes, I would like you to use a warm compress on my perineum to really help kind of loosen everything up. I'd also like you to use a lubricant and do some perineal massage as my baby is coming out to really help stretch all those tissues. I
1: want you to help coach me as my baby's head is coming out and I'm crowning so that I don't just blast the baby out. There have been several studies that have said that the thing that reduces the mom's chance of tearing the most is a slow controlled birth of the baby's head. And if baby blasts out, there's no time for those tissues to stretch and open up and make room on their own. But it does increase your pain a little bit in the present moment. But a few minutes later, your baby will be out and your bottom will be together intact. You'll be yes. so much happier. And so really talking to your doctor, or your midwife, About that? Is that something that you can help me do?
0: Yeah. But again, like, do they have maybe a birthing stool? Maybe you want to do self directed pushing and just push when you feel the urge. Again, if you have an epidural, that's not going to be an option because you're not going to feel when it's time to push. So you will have to have that coached pushing, that directing to let you know, like, okay, I need you to push this long, this hard. We're going to count to 10, hold your breath, curl under your belly, and push, push, push with your bottom. So yeah, you may need that. It depends on what also your pain management preferences were. Because yeah, if you have an epidural, then yes, the only position you really can do is on your back and on your side. But if you, let's say, don't have an epidural, then you can do tons of different positions to try and get that baby out. So another thing with pushing episiotomies, oh, that just makes me want to cross my legs just talking about it. (laughs) So
1: you can definitely ask your doctor if episiotomies are something that they routinely practice or if they only use an episiotomy in an emergency situation. You can ask their philosophy, their personal philosophy. Do they believe that an episiotomy is better for your tissue integrity and for better outcomes for mom versus a natural tear? And then you do your research and you communicate your preference to your doctor about that.
0: And another thing is also whenever it does come to an emergency situation, do they prefer to use a vacuum extractor or do they prefer to use forceps? I tend to find that forceps are not used as regularly now. I feel like it's a art form is. that is it's not taught anymore.
1: Dying art. <laughs> it is a
0: dying art. And so a lot of people use the vacuum extractor, but I like to tell families that it's a three-time shot. They'll put it on baby, and they pull and use a little suction basically on baby's head. And as you push, they pull. But if it pops off the second time, there is no third round. You then have to either get that baby out now or it's going to the OR to get baby out. So talking to them about like, hey, if it's medically necessary, you would then do an episiotomy, but would you use a vacuum or a forceps? Like how does that work and what does that look like? Okay, the afterbirth. After birth. And birth. And the birth.
1: Okay, so let's do <laughs> the birth first. Yes. Since that comes before the after That's true. So when your baby is crowning, are you going to want to touch your baby's head? Do you want to use a mirror to push and to see your baby's head when you're crowning? I have to
0: interrupt you right there. Okay, so some of you may be like, what the heck? Why would anyone want to be looking at that situation when a baby's coming out of you? But I have to say, there are some women that when they see their baby crowning, they're like, oh my gosh, I can see Mm -hmm. what's happening. It feels real. It feels real. And also, you can kind of see what is working. Like when you're pushing a certain way, you see the baby come out a little bit more and you're like, okay, that's what's working. And that's how I need to get the baby out. And you can like focus
1: on those muscles and push effectively. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Whereas some people get like, oh my God, absolutely not. And that's okay too. I probably would have not. I mean, I didn't have a mirror when I was pushing, but I mean, I don't think I would have really wanted that, but there are some women, I don't like to poo-poo it because there are some women that really, really think that, oh gosh, I am so glad that I saw what I was doing because it really helped me get that baby out sooner. So that's why it's on our birth plan template. <laughs> Definitely. And when baby does come out, if everything
1: is fine, do you want baby placed directly on your chest, skin to skin? Do you want baby to go to the warmer and get dried and get cleaned before they're placed onto you? Do you want to avoid bulb suctioning or drying or swaddling the baby unless obviously medically indicated? So what are your preferences in terms of immediate contact with your baby? Yeah.
0: And with that, it's then like, okay, do you want to do delayed cord clamping? Some people are like, well, I plan on donating my cord blood or actually banking my cord blood. So I don't think I can do delayed cord clamping. That is not true. No, it's not. That is N-O-T, not true. (laughs) You can actually do both. And I think that a lot of people also don't know that donating cord blood is an option. They think that it's either banking it through like a private bank or doing like full-on delayed cord clamping, but they don't know that donating is an option. So talking to your hospital if that is something that you'd like to do. But those are some options for you and deciding this is what I want with a cord. We want to do a three-minute delay. And then after that, we're going to bank the rest or donate the rest. And I'd like my mom to cut the cord or I'd like dad to cut the cord or whoever it is that you prefer to cut the cord. Because sometimes dads are like, oh my God, (laughs) no, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. So then the doctor ends up doing it. But then sometimes moms do it. Then they're like, you know what? I'm going to do it. If you're you're not going to do it, (laughs) I'm going to cut that cord myself. (laughs) So in the hospital, doctors
1: generally do what is called managed third stage. And so as your placenta is coming out, they give you a bag of Pitocin. And that Pitocin really helps to clamp down your uterus. It helps to avoid hemorrhage and really has your body release the placenta very quickly. So that's usually the normal route of care in the hospital. And so if that's not something that you want, if you want to look into expectant management in the third stage, so having them wait until your body releases the placenta on its own and not giving you Pitocin unless you're bleeding, that's also an option. But that's something that is, with some doctors, a really big deal is they are really not comfortable with that. And so if that is something that you're interested in, I would talk to them ahead of time. But most midwives do expectant management as they're Standard of care,
0: right? I think a lot of people are kind of shocked when I tell them, "Oh, it took an hour for my placenta to come out." They're like, "What? My placenta came out within minutes," and I'm like, "That wasn't just magical. Yeah. It's because they <laughs> and gave a you a big pitocin. old bag
1: of <laughs>
0: <laughs> So, and I guess a lot of people don't recognize it as much because. There isn't a baby inside your uterus, so you're not feeling those contractions as you were just a few minutes beforehand. But yes, there is a reason why your placenta just, you know, detached after just a few brief minutes. And obviously the pulling, yes, (laughs) your doctor will probably pull along as you're pushing or as it's detaching. But something that you definitely do want them to check is everything out. I've had a lot of people say like some of my placenta was still left in and it gave me a major infection and it was a big deal and I had to go back to the hospital and had to go in for surgery. So making sure that they take their time and going through that, not that you need to list that necessarily on your birth plan, but it's just something that you need to know that they're down there for a while because it's necessary. They need to make sure that everything is cleaned out and everything looks good, everything stitched up if it needs to be, and that you and baby are well.
1: Also think about whether you want to keep your placenta. So are you planning to bury it? Some people will bury it and plant a tree on top of it. Some people encapsulate it and take it as a capsule. That would be a good podcast on its own. (laughs) It's all about placenta encapsulation. And some people make
0: art out of it. And some people are like, no, throw that away. That's gross. (laughs) And there's no wrong answer. It's just making sure that you let your doctor know because sometimes they need you to sign like a waiver that you're taking this basically like organ. I think that the laws
1: differ state to state because officially it's hazardous waste. And so I'm not sure what the laws are in every state.
0: Yeah, so that's something that you need to look into if it is something that you do want to like take home or have encapsulated if you're having someone pick it up and do that for you. All right, so newborn care is the next section. So obviously, once you have a baby, they're rubbing on your baby, making sure they're crying and they have their lungs cleaned out and they're checking that their hips are moving and everything looks good and normal. But there are some procedures that they do and it's important to know what are options and what probably aren't.
1: Yes. So you definitely want to educate yourself about what the standard newborn procedures and vaccinations and different injections are that they give your baby. So what I would educate myself on is the erythromycin prophylactic antibiotic eye ointment that they put in your baby's eyes to treat for gonorrhea and chlamydia. The hepatitis B vaccine, which is a public health initiative to get hepatitis B vaccine to all babies. And so that's something that's routinely done in the hospital. But I will say of all of the procedures that they do to the baby, that's one that I would say gets kind of delayed the most. Many, many people are like, oh, we'll just do that with our pediatrician. There's the first bath. So, is that something you want to be there for? You want them to take the baby away and you bathe your baby as soon as possible. Do you want to wait? Do you want to wait and do that at home? And what's your preference? on Yeah, the bath? delayed,
0: delayed first bath is something that a lot of parents yeah, are now looking of into. Do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And then the vitamin K injection, and that's something that I would definitely educate myself on if you are thinking about refusing it. Just knowing what the risks are of that and what the alternatives are for getting vitamin K to your baby.
0: And the last thing is, if you are having a baby boy, do you want to circumcise him? Do you want to do it there in the hospital with the doctor that they have? Do you want to maybe have it done at home, bring your baby home and have a Jewish moil come to your house and do that procedure? Or are you going to do nothing and decide, no, we don't want to circumcise our son. He's perfect the way he is. So it's your decision and you get to decide on your birth plan what you'd like to do. So then they know if they need to call anyone or set anything up. Usually, if you do do it in the hospital, hospital. It's done within the first 24 hours after a baby is born. Mm-hmm. And so what are you also going to feed your baby? So you need to keep this little friend
1: alive and thriving. And so are you planning to formula feed? Are you planning to formula and breastfeed together? Do a combo? Are you planning to exclusively breastfeed? And if you are planning to exclusively breastfeed, really, what are your preferences for how the hospital staff interacts with your baby? So do you want them to not offer your baby a pacifier? Do you want your baby To stay with you in your room the whole time? Are you okay with supplementing or not supplementing your baby? How do you feel about having a lactation consultant come to see you? I highly recommend that. Yes, which we highly (laughs) recommend. The nurses have breastfeeding advice to give, and how much help do you want? And I really tell people to please advocate for yourself in the hospital if you are planning to breastfeed and ask for help because sometimes if you think you got it and the nurse thinks you got it, they kind of just. I think people are astounded at how much they're left alone postpartum a lot of the time. And they're like, ah, I really need someone to help me every single time my baby latches while I'm here and I have that resource available.
0: Yeah. Something that you do have to know, though, is that with different people giving you different advice, you are going to get a lot of different advice. And I even had someone who specifically hired me to be on call as a postpartum doula. So right after she had the baby, she said, only this woman is going to help me with breastfeeding. I don't want every nurse and every lactation consultant and whatever to give me all kinds of different advice because it apparently really shook her up and got her heading down the wrong path when it came to breastfeeding with her first baby. So for the second baby, she was like, no, I just want one person to be there the whole time and really help me with those things. So I mean, there's really endless options and just knowing what's available to you and knowing what you're going to feel best about if breastfeeding is something that you want to do with your baby.
1: Absolutely. So this is your birth plan and we all, you know, most births go along perfectly well and normally and are low risk. But if something unexpected happens or if you need an unexpected cesarean section or your baby needs to go to the NICU, you really want to have at least some plan for that. And even if you don't write anything on your birth plan about it, at least thinking through it ahead of time is yeah, a good idea.
0: Definitely. So a lot of it comes the unexpected because if you do have a planned cesarean section, that's when you get to like talk to your doctor and the nurses and they walk you through it. It's you know it's, it's slow music playing. yeah it's slowed down and it's really going at everyone's pace. But when it comes to an emergency an unexpected situation, that's when complications arise. That's when you want to really know what's going on because they're not going to take the time to explain every step of the way with you because they just want to make sure that they have a healthy mom and a healthy baby.
1: Definitely. So knowing that if you do have certain preferences for a C-section, knowing especially what the policy is in terms of right after the baby's born, can the baby come to you or your husband or does the baby get taken somewhere else and your husband needs to go with them with the baby or is no one allowed to go with them? Just kind of what the hospital policies are in terms of where everyone goes right after the birth. Especially if skin to skin is something that's important to you, knowing if that's an option ahead of time is a good way to adjust your expectations.
0: Yeah, because some people have to wait until they're out of the OR and in the recovery room. Not your postpartum room, but the recovery room. And some people even have to wait all the way until the postpartum room, dependent on how well your baby is doing after delivery, for sure. Definitely.
1: And so what if your baby has to go to the NICU? Oh, yeah, that's always so sad. Well, what
0: are some things to think about? So – When it comes to the NICU, you need to think about who's going to go with baby to the NICU. Right now, is it just you and your partner? Obviously, you're going to make your partner go. So that's why it's kind of nice to have an extra person in the room. So then someone can be with you because of course you're worrying about your baby, but you also don't want to leave your baby alone. So having someone like your partner go with the nurses or doctor to make sure that everything is going okay with baby is important. So saying like, yes, I'd like for my husband to go with the baby, but then I'd like for my mom or my doula or whoever to stay with me. But when it comes to immediate care, what are the things that you need to consider? Like maybe your nurse will help you with expressing colostrum. That is your liquid gold, that first breast milk that you have. So then that way they're not giving baby first formula if breastfeeding is super important to you. So really establishing that and also understanding like once your husband gets back or whoever's with the baby, when you can go and see the baby, understanding the NICU policies like visitation. Does baby have its own room? Is it this big nursery? Like how can you go and visit the baby and when are you going to be able to, especially in your condition? Did you just have a vaginal birth, a C-section, like you have to consider all of those things as well. All right. I think that's pretty much everything. Yeah, guys. I think the last part was really just the cesarean birth. And that comes with, hey, do you want to be completely knocked out, unconscious, or do you want to be awake? And most people prefer to be awake. So again, that doesn't need to necessarily be on your birth plan. But knowing that those are options is good to know. Some people want to have the screen lowered whenever their baby is being born so they can see that baby coming out. I mean, some people want nice music, like Mary Alice had said, and some people want to initiate breastfeeding and that skin to skin as soon as possible. And
1: this bottom, if you're looking at the template, this bottom part with the cesarean birth plan really is generally choices that you have to make if you're having a planned C-section. If it's an emergency C-section, you generally don't have as, as much many control options. and yeah. options over it.
0: Yeah. But I mean, sometimes if you had a doula, let's say at your birth, sometimes the anesthesiologist will let an additional person come in with you and take some pictures of the baby and that sort of thing. It just kind of depends on how emergent this situation is. So, talking about that, sometimes if
1: you tell them that your doula is your birth photographer, she has a better chance of getting in the OR just from experience. (laughs) Yes.
0: And also, if it's an emergency C section, again, you're going to be on that operating table by yourself with the anesthesiologist and wouldn't it be nice to have someone else in the room to take care of you? And even if you can trade out with the partner, the partner goes out with the baby going to the NICU and then the doula tags in to come in and be with you. So then you're never really left alone. All right, guys, holy moly, that was a lot of information, but I think we covered it all, everything that you would want to know when it comes to a birth plan. I hope it answered all of your questions on what you should consider, what you should add on there, what's important, what your doctor needs to know. Those are the things that we want you to have a better understanding and also to help you understand what is available to you so you can have the birth that you may not even know that you wanted.
1: All right. Mary Alice, anything else? Did oh, we miss anything? I think that's it. And again,
0: just remember, try and keep it to one page. <laughs> <laughs> Front and back at yeah. most, at most. All right, guys. Well, we will be back in two weeks with a new podcast. But again, we appreciate you listening. Please be sure to follow us on Facebook, on Pinterest, Instagram, and be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can down subscribe. Thanks, y'all.